Good morning, King's Chapel. How are we doing today? Good. It is a blessing to be with you this morning. I'm so happy to be here. My name is Avery Kelly, if you don't know me. My wife and I are the student ministry coordinators here, and I have the great honor and privilege and blessing of bringing God's Word to you this morning. As we mentioned a few times, we're going to be in Psalm 139, so if you want to go ahead and start turning there, feel free. Um, But as we get there, let's pray to the Lord before we enter His Word. Father, we thank You for the blessing You've given us this morning of worshiping You, of being able to glorify and exalt Your name already. Father, we pray that you would continue to give us the blessing of opening your word, that we would see wondrous things in your law, and that it would reprove and correct and train us in righteousness, that we would be complete, that we would be ready for the work that you've given us, Father. Help us to see your love and your grace, and help us to run to you in light of that. It's your name that we pray. Amen. So Psalm 139, this is, uh, as we're continuing our series in Psalm, um, we've touched on several different kinds of psalms, and there are many throughout. There are psalms of prayer, psalms of ascent, psalms of trust, there are psalms of praise. There are so many different types of psalms that we can look at, even imprecatory psalms, which we'll see a little bit this morning in one section. What's interesting about Psalm 139, the sort of crown jewel of the psalms, is that none of those really describe it perfectly. Um, There's a little bit of praise, there's a little bit of trust, um, there's a little bit of imprecatory psalm, there's a lot going on here. Uh, But that is what makes it one of the best psalms to study. An amazing psalm for us to look at. And uh, it is a psalm of David. It's hard to pinpoint exactly where he's at in his life as he's writing this. Um, But the truth is the same nevertheless. So let's go to the word of the Lord. To the choir master, a psalm of David. You can read along on the screens if you don't have a Bible. O Lord... You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take on the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. O that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. 
Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. In verse 23, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The word of the Lord. Praise be to God. So I had what I thought was an ingenious idea as a child. I wasn't very tidy. I hated cleaning my room. So naturally, my parents would often have to tell me, hey, Avery, go clean your room. And at one point or another, I came up with this idea, maybe one that you've had yourself when you were little, or maybe some that the kids in this room have right now. I would go in there, and I would start to organize my piles. I would start to get all the trash together. I made it look like I was really about to give this room the what for. It was just going to be spotless when I got done with it. But the moment my parents looked away, all of that stuff would just be shoved under the bed, right? Boom, done, out of sight. Room is spotless. I thought I had everything figured out. I was so confident my parents would say, have you cleaned your room? And I would say, yeah, yeah, I cleaned it. It's done. Until they would start to get up and walk toward the room. And then all the confidence was drained out of me. I would say, you don't need to go look. It's clean, I promise. I would try to distract them. I would do anything I possibly could to keep them from walking in this room and looking at it. And you know what happened? Pretty quickly, too. Probably the second time I did this, my parents walked into my room. And they didn't look at the spotless floor the, the empty trash can and say, wow, our son is amazing. Look at how well he cleaned his room. No, my dad walks right over to the bed and he lifts it up and all my filth and junk and uncleanness is right there for everybody to see. I thought I had had it figured out and I just got unlucky and my parents had a good guess the second time around. But looking back on it, I know that every time I did this, they knew. They knew immediately, they knew all along. However many times they let me get away with it, I knew I never actually tricked them. They knew it. And see, you and I are a lot like little kids cleaning our room and trying to shove everything under the bed. We try to hide all all of our junk and our sin from God. We want to hide our sin or keep him at a distance and do anything we can to prevent any kind of confrontation of our sin. Yet what we see here in Psalm 139 is David, a fallen man, just like you and me, well acquainted with sin. We know the stories of David. He willingly opens himself up to the searching of God to find out his sin. Why? What would make him do that? What would make David so willing to press toward God in his sin? And by extension, that same question can be given to us. What would make us and all of our sinfulness desire to press toward God in our sin? That's what I want to talk to you about this morning. And the first answer that I think we see in the psalm is that God already knows. Why would we press toward God? It's because he already knows. The first two stanzas of this psalm illustrate two characteristics about God that prove this point. And the first discusses, and I'm going to give you some big 10-cent words here, but I'm going to explain them. The first discusses God's omniscience. That means God knows everything. He has complete knowledge. And the second, uh, he knows everything because of his omnipresence or the fact that he is everywhere at all times. 
So first, God knows everything. Look at verses 2 and 3 with me. David says, You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you search out my path and my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. And what David is illustrating here, he, he's sort of using a, an, an analogy, an illustration, to look at every state of the human life. He's not just literally saying when I sit down and when I walk or sleep. He's saying it, God knows our sleeping, our walking, our waking, our rest, our playing. He knows every bit of our life. The point is that God doesn't just know a lot about us. He knows absolutely everything. He's familiar with our entire lives, every aspect of them. That's not all he knows, though. If we continue on, verses uh, 2 and 4, uh, 2, that second, second part says, You discern my thoughts from afar. And then in verse 4, Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. See, God doesn't just know all about our lives. He knows our very thoughts before we can even think them. You may have had a relationship with someone, a parent, a friend, sibling, spouse, whatever it may be, where you kind of have an idea of what this is like. In a conversation, you can finish their thoughts. You know where they're going with their point. You may even be able to finish their sentences before they can say it. You've just spent so much time together and grown to know each other so well over the years that this comes naturally. But see, this goes even deeper with God. He hasn't just observed you a lot or gotten to know you really well. God's knowledge is unlimited and unending. He exhaustively, completely knows not only our ways, your entire life, but he completely and, uh, completely and perfectly knows your being to the very core. And David knows this, and it begins to unsettle him a little bit as he continues to reflect on this character of God. He goes from praise about God knowing everything. This is so wonderful. God, you know all my thoughts. You know me completely. But then it starts to hit home about what he's saying. He begins to become overwhelmed. And we see this in the second stanza when he starts to talk about how God is everywhere. And in the second stanza, it really speaks about his omnipresence. But the thought that leads David there begins in verse 5. And if you look there, you may notice a, a subtle change of tone. He says, you hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. And there's almost a negative connotation to this. It's starting to weigh down on him. And that continues through the next thoughts where he starts to consider, I don't get this. This is too much for me. It's too, I, I can't understand your knowledge. It's too vast. And it leads David to ask, God, where shall I go from your spirit? Where could I get away from your presence or literally your face, the watching eye of God? In heaven, you're there. In Sheol, the place of the dead, you're there. And in verse 9, he even uses some poetic imagery to essentially say, if I could start at the very east... And the dawn, and at the speed of light, shoot across to the most remote, isolated part of the Western Sea. It would not be quick enough. Even there, you would be. David is fully overwhelmed at this point, and he goes so far as to say in verse 10 and 11 Even if I say, Surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. 
Even if we wanted to hide ourselves in a complete absence of light, a kind of darkness so thick that it weighs heavy on you, that you can't see your hand an inch from your face, even that cannot obscure the piercing eye of God or remove us from him. God is always and everywhere totally, fully present. Now understand, this isn't talking about God's presence like an odor. See, I I have a diffuser at home that um, I love to put peppermint essential oil in because it smells amazing. You put it in, and a few seconds later, suddenly the whole house has this sweet, crisp, nice smell that just kind of clears up your sinuses and just makes you feel energized and ready to do the schoolwork that you're not actually going to do. But that's not what God's presence is like. See, what's happening there is, not to get too scientific because I don't really understand it myself, but the molecules are being stretched out across the room. God isn't just stretched out. It's not like there's a little bit of them here and then a little bit here and then a little bit more over here. No, everywhere, in every place, at every moment, God is fully, completely, totally present in his entire being. Jeremiah says he fills the earth and the heavens. It is his whole presence that is here. And that's why David is so disturbed by this thought. God is everywhere. He knows absolutely everything. The deepest, darkest sins and failures you've kept secret from everyone else, you cannot hope to even slightly hide from this kind of God. The omniscience and omnipresence of God can be a terrifying thought in light of our sin. Do you feel overwhelmed by that? Can you see why David feels this weighing heavy on him? Understanding that God knows all and is everywhere forces us to confront the fact that we simply can't hide our sin or, or keep a distance away from God to keep him from dealing with it. Whatever we do to minimize our sin, whether it's justifying ourselves as better than others or working to overshadow it with good deeds or even just denying that it's actually sin, it's just my personal freedom and my choice, none of that works. God sees right through all of this. He sees into your very soul and being. So we have to address it. For some, this means dropping the facade of having everything together. You've worked so hard to show that, you know, I I read constantly and I pray so much and I volunteer and I tithe well. Look at how good I am. Look at everything is perfect in my life. You've established yourself as someone who's dedicated, but you know beneath the surface there lies a destructive spiritual battle that you are quickly losing, and God sees straight to that. And this text is telling you there's no use in hiding that. Open up. Be transparent with others and actually deal with your sin and struggle because you can't actually get away from it. Now, for others, this may actually mean recognizing sin as sin and admitting to yourself that you need to deal with it. It's not just personal choice. It's not just my personal freedom. This is against God, and I have to do something about it. Whatever the case, we have to deal with it. And this is the second reason David goes to God with his sin, because God provides a way to deal with sin. David isn't just giving up and throwing himself to the judgment of God, saying, oh, all is lost, I can't get away from it, so God, just judge me and be done. 
We see his motivation in the last stanza where he reveals two expectations that show why he goes to God. He has an expectation of judgment and an expectation of deliverance. And that expectation of judgment can, seen in a pretty, can be seen in a pretty odd transition in verse 19 into what is known as an imprecatory prayer, a prayer for judgment on someone. And there's a lot that could be said here. Uh, books and books have been written about what the imprecatories are, how we deal with them, how we use them. But just to address it in short, David is essentially aligning himself with God. He's saying, God, I do not want to follow the wicked. I'm on your side. I want to see the wicked judged just as you do. For our purposes, though, as we look at this, I want to take note that David is expecting that the wicked will be judged for their sins. David believes in a real, true, right judgment for those who are against God. And he shows this in other places as well. Psalm 7, verses 12 and 13, David says, If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. In Psalm 35, God is one who will draw the spear and javelin, or in some translations, battle axe, against his pursuers. And in Psalm 3, verse 7, David sees God as one who does more than just slay the wicked. Listen to this language. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek, he says. You break the teeth of the wicked. David expects a great and terrifying judgment on sin and the unjust. Yet we know that David is human, just like you and me. We know that he failed constantly. He's failed to follow God's law and requirements numerous times. And he knows that those who don't follow God receive this terrifying judgment. So why would David willingly press toward God with his sin? And again... We ask that, and the answer is because he also has an expectation of deliverance. See, in verses 23 and 24, we see David willingly taking his sin to God. Search me, God, know my heart, try me, literally meaning test or examine me, and know my thoughts. He even pleads with God to reveal deeper, unknown sin in him. Show me any grievous way in me. Show me my sins. God, show me where I don't live up to your standard that I may not be aware that I'm not living up. But the response he expects is not judgment. He expects the Lord to lead him in the way everlasting. He believes the Lord will help him turn from sin to follow God. David's expectation here is based on what he knows about the promises of God. In Psalm 51, the repentance psalm, after, he's been, after he understands his sin with Bathsheba, he talks about God blotting out transgression, washing him from his iniquity, and cleansing him from his sin. We heard him speak about God's promises last week in Andy's sermon in Psalm 103, verses 17 and 18, where he says, The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting, to those who keep his covenant and remember his commandments. Essentially, David expects God to forgive just as he has promised to do. But God can't just forget sin. Where there is sin, there must be punishment, a payment for the crime. See, we can't live up to perfection. We can never hope to satisfy the requirements of God on our own. We would never be able to live up to the total obedience to his law and perfection that he requires because we are born into sin. 
we have a natural desire to disobey, to reject. So there has to be a payment. And here we see the fulfillment of God's promises. See, God made it possible for us to receive the reward of perfect obedience when Jesus willingly entered into our darkness and took on humanity so that he could live out perfect obedience to the law of God when we couldn't. Jesus is the only person in history who could confidently say to God, search me, God, and know my heart. Try me, know my thoughts. See if there is any wrong in me. And when he was found guiltless, instead of receiving his reward, he goes to the cross to bear our sin and our failing, our unbelief, and our death. Jesus Christ came from heaven into our darkness and went to Sheol, the, the place of death. He went to death in our place so that we might be led in the way everlasting to everlasting life. Jesus was slain not because he was wicked, but for the wicked he came to save. So you and I can go to God with our sin, our deepest, darkest, most tragic failures. We can even ask him to expose more without fear of judgment. Because of what God has done on our behalf, because of his sacrifice, because he took our judgment and our death, we, when we go to him with our sin, we can know that his response will not be judgment. He's already taken that for us. His response will be forgiveness, cleansing, refinement, with strength to help us turn from our sin and follow him instead. See, it's so natural for us to want to push God away, to, to keep him at a distance, because allowing him to get too near to us, like Ed said, we don't want him all up. We, we kind of want to keep him at, a, at an arm's distance because it's scary. It might be emotionally painful or it's just too much of a commitment. I listened to a story recently about a group of actors who were doing a press tour for their show a number of years ago uh, somewhere in, in South America. And the entire time they were there, they had this local guide leading them around, and he kept trying to tell them, you should go hang gliding, you should go hang gliding, it's so fun, look at the, the beautiful landscape, the, the imagery, it's an amazing experience. And eventually, they give in. They're so impressed with the views, the landscape, excited at the thought of of this experience that they can't wait. And once they go, they're on the side of this mountain and they're looking out at this beautiful scenery and the thrill of this experience is kind of coursing through their veins. They're amped up. They're ready to go. And right before they do, as they're standing on the side of this mountain, a cliff with a sheer drop-off, thousands of feet down, the instructor comes to them and he says, you must know one thing before we do this. When I say go... You must run as hard as you can. You cannot stop. You cannot hesitate. There is no turning back. You must fully commit. And if you don't, we will crash and die. Against all instinct, when this instructor said go, they had to run full speed toward the edge of a cliff with thousands of feet below them or face certain death. Everything in them is screaming, don't do it, but they have to do it if they want to survive. See, many of us want that experience of hang gliding. We want to see the beautiful scenery. We want, we want to have the thrill of being in the air, 
But we want to be able to stop, to turn around, to hesitate at any moment that we feel it's right for us. We hate the idea of fully committing because it means being totally vulnerable. It would mean confronting our guilt and shame, owning up to our greatest failures, or admitting that we don't actually have it all together. Not fully committing, though, means certain death. You may hang for a minute, you may catch a brief gust, but eventually you will crash and burn. But listen, if you want life, if you want to experience release from the guilt and shame that you have to feel that weight lifted off your back, if you want rest from the work and toil of trying to prove your acceptance or your worth or your goodness on your own, you have to commit. You can have it, but you have to commit. You have to run. No turning back. You have to run to God against all instinct and all intuition. Run to him because only he can deal with your sin, cleanse you, and give you life. And if you do run to him, you will not only receive life and strength, you will experience peace. And that's the final reason that David runs to God with his sin. That's the reason that we should go to God with our sin, because God provides comfort. See, something that struck me as I read through this psalm the first few times was how the tone was affected by perspective. For the unbeliever, God's omniscience and omnipresence is terrifying. It's a reminder that God is more aware of your sin than you are. That no matter where you go, you cannot escape this all-knowing total presence of God. For the believer, though, we see a great comfort in God's omniscience and his omnipresence. The comfort in God's omniscience, we can see that in many places throughout the psalm. Uh, In the first few verses, for example, we read, God, you know me. You're familiar with all my ways. Before I form a word, you know my thought. But we also see this so clearly in verses 13 through 16. Let's look at this together. It says, For you form my inward parts, You knitted me together in my mother's womb. My frame was not hidden from you. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. God's omniscience is a comfort because he knows us more deeply than we know ourselves. Better than anyone else ever could. God knows you inside and out because he formed you inside and out. He knows your personality, your characteristics, your strengths, and your weaknesses better than any Enneagram test ever could. He even knows our greatest fears. The word thought in verse 23, for example, literally translates to anxious thoughts. So God knows your worries and your anxieties. He knows He has known you since before you even had days to your life, before you took your first breath, and he perfectly knows every day of yours that is to come. The very God who created the heavens and the earth intimately and personally knows you. My favorite thing about being married to Allison is that I'm married to my best friend. 
Oh, right, no. But I'm not just saying that to get brownie points or look good or to make her happy. I genuinely mean that she is my best friend. That's why we got married. She knows me better than anyone else on this planet. She knows my greatest fears. She knows my highest accomplishments. She knows my lowest failures and my deepest desires. It's hard for me to think about something that she does not already know about me. And that brings me joy. That's one of the reasons that we desire to get married because we want that kind of deeply intimate, special relationship where you get to have someone who knows you so well that you can be completely open and vulnerable. You can lay it all out bare in front of them and still experience unconditional love and full acceptance. It's indescribable to have that kind of relationship. Yet God knows us deeper still. In your doubts, God knows your true heart and faith. In distress, he knows your needs. When you surrender to God, you enter into a relationship with someone who knows every facet of your being inside and out, beginning to end, and who, despite that, loves you unconditionally. And who, in light of that, offers better counsel and peace and comfort and care than anyone else ever can. The great comfort in God's omnipresence is that no matter where you go or what you experience, the transcendent God of the universe is personally, fully, and covenantally present with you. In verse 5 earlier, we saw this kind of overwhelming turn in David's thought. He began to consider how God had hemmed him in behind and in front and all around. And that word hem actually brings up this imagery of an army that's encircled a city and is about to besiege them. This sort of huge militaristic power that is about to just demolish a city that stands no chance. And that's a terrifying thought to think of the presence of God completely surrounding you, set on judgment. That's scary. From our new perspective, though, from this perspective of comfort of someone who's in relationship with God, it actually becomes an exciting comfort for us because God's presence doesn't change. He still has us hemmed in. We're still surrounded by him in front and behind and all around with this great power But that same force that was at one time set to besiege us in judgment is now surrounding us in protection. And there is nowhere that you can go from this presence. Wherever you go, you have that presence with you. And this is exactly what David talks about in verses 10 through 12. Wherever we go, whatever we experience, the bliss of heaven, the turmoil of Sheol, even the complete isolation as if we were in the remotest part of the sea, God is there. And not only that, David says his hand leads us there. His right hand shall hold us there powerfully when we're in those dark places. There is no place that we can go to where God is absent or even distant from us. There's no situation we can experience where God is not present and firmly holding us secure by his powerful right hand. And so we can say with David, even if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even if the sin, wickedness, misery, and destruction of this world feels as though it's going to swallow me up whole, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. 
in your hardest moments, when you have lost your job, when you're so stressed you can't sleep, as you anxiously wait to hear if the cancer is finally gone, or even when you feel utterly and completely alone and isolated, swallowed up in depression, even when the world feels like it's going to crash down on you in all of its brokenness and misery and sin, the Lord is with you. He is holding you by the hand. He is tightly embracing you in love. He is there and nothing can change that. Nothing can separate you from him. To say that it's scary to face God with our sin is an understatement. The idea of bringing our sin to a holy God is terrifying because his holiness is too much for us. That's why Isaiah cried out in woe. And after uh, Peter sees the miracle in the boat with the fish, he tells Jesus to depart from him because he's too sinful to be in his presence. But when we press toward God, when we run to him, he not only extends forgiveness and life, but comfort and strength as well. See, if you can face God with your sin, you can face anything. The hard part is done. The victory has been, one, your worst-case scenario in any situation still ends with you in the complete rejoicing presence of the Lord, no matter what happens. You may one day find yourself in a work environment where everyone else is cutting corners yet moving up because of it. And following God... Keeping integrity in that moment means getting looked over, missing out on a raise, or even looking like you're not a hard worker because all these other people are getting the jobs done better than you are. Or at least it looks that way. And keeping integrity is hard there. It would, both, it would be so easy to cut those corners, to lie, to skip steps, and get a quick reward. That's what our heart wants it hurts to be overlooked or even looked down on for not following suit and giving in to the immorality. But it's worth it to keep God's commands, to refuse wickedness. And remember, you've faced harder already. And for others in your tough moments, you can know that the Lord knows you. He knows your heart and he's with you in every trial and hardship. When you struggle with sin, the Lord knows your faith, and he will refine you and lead you in his way. When you fear for security or safety or stability, the Lord knows your anxious thoughts, and he's there in your need. In the pit of despair and hopelessness, when darkness swallows you up, you have a God who went into darkness for you. And that same God is there with you to bring light into your darkness. When we consider our sin in light of a holy God, every natural response is to hide, to push away. We want to run from God or even act as though he isn't real like much of the world today. We may attempt to hide our sin with a front of good deeds, or we may try keeping him at a distance by only taking the good parts, like the love and the mercy and the grace, while kind of keeping at a distance the more hard-to-swallow parts, like his holiness, his wrath, and his justice. But none of those ways actually work. See, if you run, it doesn't mean he isn't there. No matter how much good you do, it will never be enough. 
And if you try pushing him away, thinking you just want enough to get salvation, to get the good parts, but not enough to have to go through the painful process of addressing and turning from your sin, you end up with no real relationship with God at all. I was going to close with a C.S. Lewis story from the Chronicles of Narnia, um, but I felt like that'd be a tad cliche. So we'll go with The Hobbit instead. (laughs) And there's a moment in the story, if you're not familiar with it, where Bilbo and the dwarves, uh, the main characters, have made it to this mountain where Smog or Smaug or however you say it is, the evil dragon in the mountain that they're trying to take back. And the dwarves have decided to send Bilbo down the tunnel to take the first look at the dragon for the first time. They have no idea what to expect or what he may encounter. And Bilbo wants absolutely nothing to do with this. From like page 12, he's just wanting to get back home. He's wanting to sit in front of his fireplace with a nice meal, some warm tea, and his pipe. That's all he can think about. He wants an easy life. He never wanted this adventure, but he eventually decides that he's got no other option. So he starts down the tunnel, and it's a long tunnel. It's a long walk. He's getting closer and closer to the dragon. He's heard nothing but terrible stories about this dragon, about its great power and might, its destruction, and fear begins to fill him. As the tunnel grows darker and the dim light that streamed through the small crack they came in begins to go away. And he's shrouded in complete darkness. And there comes a point where Bilbo stops. And he thinks to himself about turning back or even hiding somewhere else in the tunnel where neither the dwarves nor Smog will ever find him and he can just live out his days in peaceful hiding. But he journeys on in the pitch black toward the dragon despite all his natural inclinations and desires. And at that point, the book says, going on from there was the bravest thing he ever did. The tremendous things that happened afterwards were as nothing compared to it. He fought the real battle in the tunnel alone before he ever saw the vast danger that lay in wait. So you can try to run from God. You can act like he doesn't exist. You can overcompensate with good deeds. You can even strive to make it look like you've got everything together on the outside. But God sees straight through every bit of this. He knows everything. He knows your whole life, your true heart, the very core of your being. And he is everywhere at all times. When you think no one is watching or no one will ever see that secret sin, you cannot escape the face of God. Not even complete darkness can obscure the piercing, all-knowing, ever-present observation of this God. It's certainly scary to approach a God like that when we are so sinful. It will be the bravest thing that you ever do. But if you go to Him, if you press toward God, then the battle is won. The work is done. Without a doubt, there will be battles to come, but nothing you encounter after facing God with your sin will be too great or too difficult to handle with the strength and comfort of the omniscient, omnipresent God of the universe. Even your darkest night will be as bright as day. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for the great beauty and glory of who you are. That we do not serve a small God um, who may be able to give us what we want in the moment, but ultimately has no power. God, that you are not like the idols of, of the pagans that seem to give rest, but actually offer nothing but judgment. God, we thank you that you are omniscient and omnipresent. What a comfort that is to know that you know all things. You know my true heart. You know my days as they're coming in the midst of a pandemic that seems like no one could have saw it coming, and it's just the worst thing we've ever experienced in the last hundred years. God, you knew it, and you know it well. You've led us here. You're holding us with your hand. God, I pray that you would continue to lead us, that you would lead us in such a way that we have no choice but to run to you. Pray that you would give us the strength to run to you, to open our sins. God, that you would search us and know our hearts, that you would know our anxious thoughts, that you would reveal further and deeper sin in us so that you could cleanse us from it, so that you could offer the forgiveness of Christ, and so that you could help us to turn from that to follow you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. All right, that's a, such a great truth that you are known inside and out. He knows everything about you inside and out, and yet his is a love that will never let you go. I hope you'll meditate on that with me this week and that you'll remember that you are fully known, fully accepted, and fully loved. And so now, may the God of all peace, may, may he lift his face upon you. May he be gracious to you. May he keep you and bless you. May he lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. Go in that peace and have a great Lord's Day.